The River Trent is the third longest river in the United Kingdom. From its source on the Staffordshire Moors, all the way to its emptying out into the frigid North Sea via the Humber estuary, it cuts an impressive swathe through the English Midlands. Over a thousand years ago, these windswept plains and sleepy hills were the heartlands of an early medieval kingdom. For a century and more, the most powerful in Britain. We know it as Mercia. Around halfway along the river sits just one of the many settlements founded by those Anglo-Saxon newcomers during the early Middle Ages. The city of Nottingham. The past can still be seen here if you look hard enough in the right places. In the limestone caves that permeate the underbelly of the city and by the imposing hilltop citadel atop its highest cliffs. Like nearby Derby and Leicester, cities with Roman foundations, Nottingham may in fact predate the coming of the Anglo-Saxons in the 5th and 6th centuries, a situation hinted at by an earlier Brythonic name, meaning place or city of caves though no archaeological evidence has yet been found for this. It is during the twilight years after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire that the first verifiable evidence for Nottingham is found. A time of warring clans, shifting alliances and a new Germanic culture arriving from across the North Sea. Yet also, one of the periods in history with the least amount of verifiable historical information. Just to the north and west of Nottingham, fierce Pecansete, or Peaklanders, claimed the land. To the south, it was the Tomsete. But in the land around Nottingham, we find a unique situation, the Snottingers, perhaps reflecting the name of an individual clan chieftain, a warlord named Snot or Snod. Although it does remain possible that Snottinger instead actually means place of caves. If Snod did exist, long ago, perhaps sagas and stories of his deeds might have been sung in mead halls across southern Britain, long since lost to oblivion. In time, the town of the Snottingers and those of the Peaklanders, Tomsete, Poiche, and all manner of other peoples became part of a much larger kingdom, the land of Mercia. By the time Christianity and a somewhat literary culture began to seep back into the island in the 600s, Nottingham, on an ideal location on the Trent, accessible by both land and sea, had become a thriving trade centre. Though pagans were now frowned upon, long-distance trade links were still regularly forged all the way out to the Humber and across the North Sea. By the latter 9th century, Mercia had fallen on hard times. 
the great king Offa was now long dead, and a new power had arisen in the south in the form of the West Saxons, and more recently a new threat had arrived. For that same lifeline to commerce and riches on a good year could very well lead to death on a bad one. In the late summer of 867, despite being right in the middle of England, almost as far away from the sea as you can get, longboats were spotted on the Trent. Sailing on their dragon-headed ships deep into the interior of England, infesting the river systems like they'd done all over Europe, as well as riding stolen horses across the land, Vikings had come to Nottingham. And they were led by Ivar the Boneless and Halfdan Ragnarsson, pagans from across the sea, two of the most feared warriors of the age. By the time King Burgred of Mercia mustered an army, supported by his West Saxon allies to the south, it was too late. The town had fallen the surrounding countryside stripped of food and riches. Determined to make a stand, Burgred began a siege of the city. Yet during this time, sieges drained the resources of both besiegers and besieged, and Burgred's men simply weren't disciplined enough to prevent occasional forays into the countryside by the Vikings to get supplies. For Ivar and Halfdan's men, were masters of living off the land. Unlike the Vikings, who had a professional army blooded from a lifetime of war, Burgred's force was made up of two types of warriors. The well-equipped professional household soldiers could be relied upon all year round, but they were few and far between, the vast majority of the army being made up of the fjord, a peasant levy that had to go home for the winter to plant their crops, lest they starve the next year. And many of them were fighting on home turf. The stalemate dragged on, eventually forcing Burgred to call off the siege, allowing Ivar and Halfdan to head back north to their newly claimed city of York to fight another day weighed down with vast amounts of plunder. The contemporary sources are cagey about the details, but the Vikings had probably been paid off. Given a taste of wealth and weakness, Norsemen would always be back. In the 870s, arriving again in force, Burgred, the last independent king of Mercia in history, fled the country, living out the rest of his days in Rome. By 877, the western portion of Mercia was ruled by a puppet king, Cheolwulf, called a foolish king's thane in the West Saxon sources. The east would be settled by Scandinavians. In time, the Anglo-Saxon towns of Derby, Leicester, Lincoln, Stamford and Nottingham becoming bastions of an immigrant Scandinavian population. 
we know today as the Five Boroughs. Also loosely aligned to towns further to the south at Bedford, Huntingdon and Northampton, as well as the Kingdom of Jorvik to the north and the Kingdom of East Anglia to the south. For a generation to come, until reconquest by Wessex in the summer of 918, the five boroughs existed under self-rule, led by Danish jarls and leaders, and still evidenced today by place name evidence, DNA and language. At least 600 modern English words such as husband, fellow, egg, window, knife and race coming straight from Danish along with a number of local colloquial terms such as duck. Though this region of the East Midlands was technically reincorporated into England in the early 10th century, it would relapse to Scandinavian control many times. And though the exact numbers of Scandinavian immigrants during the 9th and 10th centuries remains a matter of dispute, it certainly retained unique elements of Scandinavian culture for much longer. The Danish law code of the East Midlands surviving all the way up until the mid-12th century and Henry II's creation of English common law. This is the story of the Vikings of the East Midlands, a state that thrived in the heart of England for centuries and might have still spoken Danish today had history played out ever so slightly differently. This episode of History Time is sponsored by CuriosityStream, a subscription-based streaming service that offers thousands of documentaries and non-fiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, including exclusive originals you can't find anywhere else. The world's first streaming service dedicated entirely to learning, with categories including history, science, nature, technology, society and lifestyle. Just like other streaming services, you can watch CuriosityStream on all of your devices. And best of all, you can get access to all of it for just $2.99 a month. With your first 30 days completely free of charge if you sign up using my link. There's so much to watch on this service that I've honestly been spoiled for choice. Recently, I've been watching Storm Over Europe a four-part series charting the history of the Germanic peoples who inherited Europe from the Roman Empire, as well as loads of other great history documentaries on Rome, ancient history and more. Head on over to curiositystream.com forward slash history time for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction titles and get 30 days free. There are links to everything in the description below. Now, back to the post-Roman twilight. The Humber Estuary. Today, an industrial landscape, moulded by the fires of commerce. Goods and people ferried over the stark waterways of the North Sea, as they have been for millennia. Today, this landscape is permeated by giant towns like Hull, hugging the shore. 
ferries and cargo liners to Belgium, the Netherlands and beyond are regularly seen chugging down the estuary, not too dissimilar to Bronze Age and early medieval predecessors. For 1100 years ago, this was an artery of trade and commerce too. A thousand years ago, one of the most important settlements along this shore may seem an unlikely place. Voted worst place to live in the UK several years in a row in a number of different publications. Grimsby, like Nottingham, is named after an individual who founded it. This time, however, a Viking. There is a story at the root of this town too, a good one, the tale of Havelock the Dane. The Danish prince saved from the sea by the heroic fisherman Grim. All down the eastern seaboard it was the same, at places like Scarborough, said to have been founded by a warrior named Scarthy, whose tale almost feels like a more fleshed out version of earlier Germanic warriors such as Snot, the legendary founder of Nottingham. With infinitely more being known about Grimm and Scarthy simply because of the much increased sophisticated society in the centuries since Snot's day. He, living in a century of near-perpetual darkness in terms of historical accounts. Heading south from Grimsby, all the way down to the inhospitable Fenlands of the Wash. The coast once belonged to the Kingdom of Lindsay. Already an ancient memory by Burgred's time. Its royal house having finally lost its tenuously held independence via a royal marriage in 800. The coastline was different in those days. Reclaimed land in the later Middle Ages, having created a solid, definable shore, where once existed marshes and winding waterways. Home to holy men, and monsters too, leftovers from the pagan days of old. Lindsay, with its central town of Lincoln, built on Roman foundations, had been a battleground between Northumbria and Mercia for centuries. And after the fall of Jorvik to the Vikings in 866, the region would once more go its own way. And many, believing their god had abandoned them, would turn back to those old ways. The first large-scale Viking attack on Lindsay is recorded by the Wessex-written Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in 841. No doubt earlier attacks took place too, ultimately however being deemed unworthy of record by later West Saxon scribes writing during the time of Alfred the Great. Attacks on Mercia continued throughout the 850s, with major assaults on London tearing through the kingdom. In 865, however, an even larger force arrived on the coasts of East Anglia. This time not to plunder, but to conquer the four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms for good. 
swiftly riding north to capitalise on the endemic civil wars that had ravaged Northumbria for decades. The capital of Eofferwich was captured before both rival kings, united against a common foe, headed off together to the afterlife. Like they would soon do with Mercia, a puppet king, Egbert, was put in place to keep the peace for the time being and to raise taxes. After leaving Nottingham in 868, likely in return for a hefty Danegeld, left out of the historical record, the leaders of the Viking force, Halfdan and Ivar, retreated back to Eofferwich, soon to re-emerge under a new name, Jorvik, and remaining a bastion of Scandinavian culture for centuries to come. For the winter of 869 to 870, they arrived at Thetford, a site connected to the Wash and the North Sea, which would eventually grow into an important Scandinavian town. In the spring, they moved on, back to East Anglia, putting an end to the kingdom, perhaps the oldest of the Anglo-Saxons, and making a martyr of its king. Next on the agenda was Wessex, where the most resolute resistance was encountered yet. Ultimately failing to conquer the land, but again heading off with another Danegeld, before finally returning to Mercia, a broken realm. In that same year of 871, the situation was further complicated by a new force freshly arrived from Scandinavia great summer army, led by a sea king named Guthrum, the man who would take command of the war against Wessex, becoming the personal nemesis of that kingdom's new king, Alfred. Meanwhile, in the north, by 872, after five years of occupation, the fires of Northumbrian rebellion finally broke out. The Danish puppet king Egbert, a glorified tax collector hailing from one of the competing Northumbrian noble families, was expelled from York, along with the Quisling Archbishop Wolfhir. As soon as he got word, Halfdan moved north, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, making his base in Lindsay, a region with easy access to Mercia by land and both East Anglia and Jorvik by the sea, which would become a stronghold of Scandinavian rule. It is at this point in the tale that our literary evidence can be backed up by archaeology. For unlike other sites such as Nottingham, the Viking camp at Torxey never became urbanised, meaning archaeology can be and has been conducted here yielding incredible results. Vast amounts of hack silver and coins have been found, along with elaborate ornate gaming pieces found by metal detectorists in 2015, and evidence of trade, craftsmanship and female camp followers. Experts think that the Torxy camp may have been large enough to house between 1,500 and 5,000 people, a city on the move. 
Halfdan was soon able to secure control of the southern portion of Northumbria in campaigns during 873 and 874. Yet the northern lands past the Tees, heirs to the ancient kingdom of Bernicia, eluded him. Seeming to retain some kind of local autonomy under the rule of a lord named Rixig. In 872, Burgred may have travelled to Torxi to pay yet another tribute to save his kingdom. Yet, with only Wessex remaining free to the south, and Danes marching at will over his kingdom, Mercia's time was up. In 873, the army moved in, heading deep inland near to the banks of the Trent once more to Repton, not far from Derby and just 18 miles from Nottingham. The place had been an especially important cult centre since the 7th century, and burial place of Mercian kings. The Viking move there was a statement of intent. They were now in charge, and in response, Burgred fled the country, never to return puppet ruler taking his place. According to Alfred the Great's biographer Asser, in 874, following their winter stay at Repton, the Vikings then split into two bands, with one being led by Halfdan and the other Guthrum. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, Halfdan and his men subdued all the land of Mercia at this time, whereas Guthrum and his men as well as the kings Oscatel and Anwend took up winter quarters at Cambridge in East Anglia, from where Guthrum tried to conquer Wessex one final time. During the decade from 871, there were many partitions of land between Danish newcomers and English residents, some recorded innumerable unknown. By 876, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Halfdan shared out the lands of the Northumbrians, and they proceeded to plough and to support themselves. We also have another quote. In the harvest season of 877, the army went away into Mercia, and shared out some of it, and gave some to Caelwulf. In 878, King Alfred finally defeated Guthrum conclusively, thus ensuring the survival of Wessex for the time being, and making it even more important to solidify land claims, for many Scandinavians the era of conquest being over. Guthrum's men mostly travelled to East Anglia. In this year, the army went from Cirencester into East Anglia and settled there and shared out the land. Though no doubt some travelled to Mercia too, where the West remained under the control of Mercian landowners. The East, however, having been formally ceded to the Danes by Alfred at the Treaty of Wedmore, the boundary of Watling Street would remain the border between English and Dane for centuries to come.
In truth, between 877 and 910, we have very little information at all on the East Midlands. To the south, in East Anglia, Guthrum becomes king, followed by another named Eorik. Likewise, in Jorvik, we have a variety of named leaders, found on coinage and in the written record, beginning with Halfdan, followed after a gap of six years by a former slave named Guthrid, and then two figures named Sigurd and Knut. But in the five boroughs, we get no names at all. They don't appear for a decade or more to come. And, unlike in these other areas, both roughly coinciding with the borders of older Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and using the church and existing institutions to prop themselves up, the bishops of Lindsay and Leicester simply disappear in the 870s. By around 900, when scraps of written information pertaining to the East Midlands again begin to show up, all signs heavily point to a mass displacement of the nobility. Accompanied, perhaps, by widespread Scandinavian colonisation in the countryside. We can see this in language, place name evidence, archaeology and in the written record. Though, in truth, it remains difficult to tell whether this was mass peasant migration with some scholars seeing comparable effects to those of the coming of the Anglo-Saxons in the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, or simply an overthrow of the elite to the north and east of Watling Street, or a mixture of both. For example, we have well over 300 Scandinavian place names in Lincolnshire alone, and certain areas of Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and Leicestershire with very high levels of Scandinavian names. Yet, nevertheless, the majority of place names did remain English, as opposed to somewhere like the Isle of Man, where there was a total takeover of language and place names, with only one or two pre-Norse names surviving. It was once thought that the five boroughs may have been specifically fortified as an act of Danish policy after the partitions of 876 to 877, perhaps even inspiring Alfred to set up his burrs. In actuality, archaeology suggests they may not have become true fortified settlements until the 900s or at least 910s, inspired by Alfred's fortifications with the years up until that point taken up with partitioning, organising and running the half of a kingdom now under the control of the immigrant Danes. Derby, Leicester and Lincoln had all been built on Roman foundations, and though Saxons tended to avoid Roman walls, Vikings had no such qualms, incorporating them into their defences, and perhaps structures in the towns themselves. At Nottingham and Stamford, Saxon enclosures predate Viking constructions, with the foundation of Stamford's castle in particular dating well back into the early Saxon period, 
Interestingly, the five borough towns all retained their Saxon names, besides Derby, which had once been called Noteworthy. None of them were particularly large urban centres before the Viking Age. Anglo-Saxon England was predominantly rural in character, perhaps originating as the centres of lordly estates. In the years following the 870s, the seizure of countryside areas by Scandinavian settlers may have caused some of the rural dispossessed to seek new opportunities in towns, and thus led to their growth. Some English towns are thought by scholars to have grown somewhat during this time, as people found themselves evicted from countryside areas by incoming Danish farmers. As time went on, and certainly by around 900, each of the five boroughs seems to have been ruled as a Danish jarldom, controlling lands around a fortified burr, which served as the centre of political power. Though relatively little archaeological activity has been carried out on sites from this period, Danish settlement undoubtedly had a profound impact upon the region's identity and culture. By the late 9th century, Derbyshire in particular was especially Danish in culture, as reflected by the change of the name itself, and the Jarls there continued to expand their lands. A number of early Viking Age structures have been found in Nottingham, at Drury Hill, Fishergate and Woolpack Lane. With pottery being made for sale at Halifax Place, along with excavated swords in Nottinghamshire and a golden ring found at Newark just further down the Trent being just a few items amongst many. At Stamford, iron smelting and pottery production were important industries during the Viking Age and many timber structures have been found from that time. The best evidence by far of urban life in the five boroughs, however, comes from Lincoln, the town furthest away from the border and thus most able to enjoy its newfound autonomy. Though the Burr at Lincoln, occupied by Danes from the early 870s onwards, guarded the route between Wessex and Jorvik, it was protected from much of the Anglo-Danish fighting due to its isolated location. Here we have significant riverside activity and land reclamation, along with evidence of a significant new street system from around 874 onwards at Flaxengate and Michaelgate, seemingly under common ownership, perhaps funded by a group of wealthy merchants. For the Scandinavians that moved into Lincoln were not marauding warriors, but traders. The crumbling Roman ruins here, inhabited near continuously since the decay of the city in the 5th century, proved to be an ideal spot for a town. Soon enough, artisans here would begin producing goods for export, such as clothing, hinted at by the street name Flaxengate, salt hinted at by Saltergate, and also becoming experts at glassworking and metalworking. 
Ultimately, like the Saxons before them, the Danes of the East Midlands were predominantly farmers, and all of the five borough towns relied heavily on their rural hinterlands for raw material, goods and manpower. Though operating their own autonomous armies, the Jarls of the Five Boroughs often found themselves subject to overlords in Jorvik, East Anglia or even the large Danish settlements at Northampton and Bedford, which existed in a similar manner. Boundaries were by no means clear-cut. Fealty was fluidic, as was language, culture and religion. Some areas looked to Jorvik, others to East Anglia, and others still, perhaps even looked across the borders to Wessex and Mercia, particularly as Christianity began to filter in. In the south, following Guthrum's death in 890, hundreds more Viking longboats arrived from the continent. Yet, Alfred's new fleet of ships and his defences held out. Many of these newcomers, however, no doubt settled in the east of the island, which Wessex and Mercia were content to keep the peace with for now, though pieces on the board were beginning to move about and plans put into motion. In 894, Alfred sent an ambassador north to Jorvik to discuss the territories which the York Danes held to the west of Stamford, possibly in relation to his daughter Ethelfled, married to the ruler of Mercia. The area around Stamford was invaded by a West Saxon elderman, Ethelnoth, in the summer of 894, but the town was not besieged and Danish rule unaffected, though any more information is lost. Alfred continued solidifying his holdings into Burrs to fend off Viking attacks, a strategy that would be continued by his children. As we shall see, the Danes did exactly the same in the lands they already held. By 900, an otherwise unknown king named Halfdan was ruling York, and perhaps some lands in the Midlands reflected by coins minted at York. But who ruled in Viking Lincoln is not known. Coins were minted here, but they do not mention a king, instead curiously having St. Martin on them, the patron saint of the city. Yet to the south and west, events were being put into motion. The warriors who had conquered the land were now mostly dead. In their place had come merchants and traders. Whereas in Wessex and Mercia, a new generation of fighters had been born. And new threats soon emerged from beyond the sea too. It is only by 910 that we hear of Danish military jarls ruling over the towns of the five boroughs. Whether men like these were in power before, or whether they were a result of English power, we don't know. Men like Thurkotel at Bedford, Thurfirth at Northampton, and Tolly at Huntingdon. 
Some historians have even suggested that before this time, and possibly even during, the lands were ruled as a quasi-parliamentary system, with a thing such as at Iceland and the Isle of Man, with some paying lip service to Northumbria and some to East Anglia. In the early 10th century, Norsemen from Ireland began making inroads into the eastern shores of Northumbria. Though some may have allied themselves to the Danes of the region, they were of a different culture, spoke a different dialect, and some, at least, began to make a nuisance of themselves to the rulers of Jorvik, thus creating another front for the Danes of the Five Boroughs to worry about. In 909, hostilities once more flared up between Dane and Englishmen as a combined West Saxon Mercian force launched a raid deep into Lindsay, where they seized the relics of St. Cuthbert, a huge propaganda victory. In the next year, a large counter-raid was launched into Mercia, reaching all the way down to the Severn, On its way back north, however, disaster struck near modern-day Wolverhampton as an English trap was sprung. Much of the Northumbrian army, weighed down as they were by plunder, were massacred, including all three of their kings, Eowils, Halfdan and Ingvar. This was exactly what Edward and Ethelfled had hoped for. The web around the Danelaw was closing in. By 9-11, Cambridge was threatened when Edward finished construction on a burr at the opposing town of Hartford. Thus began an era of raid and counter-raid, of border wars and shifting frontiers. Sometimes, offence is the best form of defence, and in 913, the Leicester Danes combined their army with the men of Northampton in order to raid deep into Bedfordshire and Oxfordshire as well as attempting a siege of the new burr at Hartford. Initially successful, the Battle of Tettenhall was repeated, as local Mercian forces at Luton ambushed the Danes on their way home, forcing them to abandon many horses and weapons. Meanwhile, to the north, Lady Ethelfled of Mercia campaigned deep into the Five Boroughs establishing a burr near the old capital of Tamworth, in direct opposition to Derby. In the next year, she built another at Warwick to oppose Leicester. Also in 914, a fresh fleet of Vikings arrived on the Severn from Brittany, no doubt bringing fresh settlers to the Five Boroughs. Though much had changed in the last few decades, and Mercia was now strong, making light work of this new force and throwing them back into the sea. In December 914, Danish strength was further depleted when a number of Northampton Danes under Jarl Thurkotel, having been gradually surrounded in a pincer movement, submitted to Edward at Bedford. 
Edward returned to take direct control of the fortress in 915, before allowing Thurcatel and a number of his followers to leave the country entirely for France. By July 917, the Danes of East Anglia finally made their move, along with those of Huntingdon. Advancing to Tempsford, where they built a burr and attempted to retake Bedford. Their defeat by the West Saxons was so severe that by the end of the year, both Huntingdon and the entirety of East Anglia had fallen. Similarly to the North, the combined armies of Leicester, Northampton and perhaps Derby went on the offensive, ultimately unsuccessfully besieging the Burr at Towchester. Moving quickly, Ethelfled launched her first full-scale offensive into the Five Boroughs, successfully assaulting the town of Derby, one of the most important in the Five Boroughs, seizing it after a fierce battle by the end of July, according to the Mercian Register, losing several thanes dear to her in the process. With the loss of Derby and East Anglia, the two now veteran English armies on the warpath, it was only a matter of time before the rest of the five boroughs folded. Lincoln was probably the last to fall, perhaps surviving as long as independent Jorvik did, striking Jorvik coins into the early 920s. The rest submitted by the summer of 918 after assault by West Saxon forces. But what became of the Danish populations after they submitted? Well, most of the new towns were heavily fortified by Mercian and West Saxon forces. But some, like Nottingham, were manned by joint Saxon and Danish forces, the latter of which made oaths to serve the king. Some Danes, of course, left the country and they seem to have been allowed to do so, such as the Bedford Jarl Thurkatel. Others, however, no doubt became client rulers of the English. Northampton Jarl Thurfirth, for example, attested four charters of Edward's son and heir Athelstan between 930 and 934, and may have even fought in his army. There was probably another condition that the English demanded. If the five Borough Danes weren't Christian by 918, they soon would be. And though allowed to keep their own rulers and laws, in time, Saxon and Dane would be unified in faith against the heathens. In 937, the greatest battle fought in Britain's early Middle Ages before Hastings played out at an unknown fortress named Brunenburg, somewhere in the north. With the English under Alfred the Great's grandson Athelstan emerging as the undisputed masters of Britain. Almost certainly with men from the five boroughs marching in their ranks, along with men from every other region of the newly forged kingdom. Just two years later, however, Athelstan was dead, England collapsing, and the adversary he'd so admirably bested returned without opposition to claim the kingdom of Jorvik. He was Olaf Guthfrithson, 
Viking King of Dublin, a pagan, and under his rule, the Viking Age in the Midlands began anew. Within a matter of months, not just Jorvik, but the people of the five boroughs too, whether they liked it or not, found themselves back under direct Scandinavian rule. Not that they necessarily wanted to be ruled by pagans from Ireland, but in 10th century Britain, only the strongest got their way, and Olaf was most certainly stronger than the new English king, Edmund, barely out of his teens. Edmund attempted to take Leicester back, following an unsuccessful Norse attempt on Northampton, but ended up ceding the five boroughs to Olaf at a peace conference. Sensing the way the wind was blowing, Jarl Orm attested in charters from 930 until 958, perhaps the ruler of Leicester at the time, married his daughter to Olaf. Yet in the next year, such is fate, Olaf was dead, and it would be the Scandinavians' turn for their kingdom to crumble. Finally, by 942, having raised a large enough army, and with his rival gone, King Edmund marched north. It is only at this point that we have the first historical mention of the term Five Boroughs, in the form of an epic historical poem recording their capture. King Edmund, Lord of the English, protector of kinsmen, overcame Mercia, doer of necessary deeds as far as Dor and Whitwell Gap, to the wide Humber's rapid sea stream, seizing back the five boroughs. Leicester, Lincoln, Nottingham, Stamford, and Derby too, those dwelling there bowed by need under the Norseman's heathen yoke, until, to his honour, the brave Edmund, Edward's son, broke the oppressor's brutish chains, and freed from their foes, God, fearing Danes. The rulers of the five boroughs, and much of their populace, were undoubtedly not English. Yet in the poem, we can see a clear attempt to anglicise the Danes of the East Midlands, many of whom were Christian now, as opposed to the heathen Norsemen who briefly ruled them. Poems such as these probably went a long way to constructing a unified English identity out of a variety of ethnic groups, using common religion as a unifier. on lonely Stainmoor in Cumbria. So says the 13th century historian Roger of Wendover, probably drawing from a long-lost 10th century chronicle. The last independent Northumbrian king, Eric Bloodaxe, was betrayed and killed, along with his kinsman Ragnald and his son Horik. England once more found itself united under the suzerainty of the West Saxon kings, and this time 
it would last. Though in truth, the success of the Wessex regime rested on its leniency in allowing Danish areas under their control a high level of autonomy. West Saxon kings probably rarely, if ever, visited the north, preferring to exercise their power and gather taxes through proxies, local leaders who they could personally rely on for support. In the East Midlands, these proxies usually came in the form of powerful noble families, men and women of Scandinavian descent and joint Anglo-Scandinavian culture who would continue to rule these lands for hundreds of years to come. These were the lords of the five boroughs, still utilising the old Danelaw border of Watling Street, the Danish-ruled East Midlands had its own local courts a unique Scandinavian-style administration and even legal identity. Many of the people there still had Danish names, language and laws, though they defined themselves as Christian rather than heathen. By the time of Ethelred the Unready in the late 10th century, we can actually read one of these unique law codes with a jury of 12 men being sworn to decide judgment on cases, perhaps being based on much older Scandinavian systems. Only later did this style of legal practice pass into the English legal system, and may later have been used to help with the compiling of the Doomsday Book. Though in reality, this Danish law may have been reserved for the upper classes the Danish nobility who'd ruled the region since the 9th century and were useful to have around for the West Saxon elite. In time, the towns ruled by Danes, incorporated once more into the lucrative North Sea trade system, became industrial powerhouses, manufacturing goods for internal as well as international trade. As usual, though we can see this transition under English rule in all of the towns of the five boroughs, it is most visible at Lincoln. By the mid-10th century, a new suburb, Wigford, was laid out south of the river and further downstream. The North River Bank was also converted so larger boats could tie up and unload goods for trade. The growth of the Royal Mint here in 960, along with glass and copper alloy workshops, made it one of the most important towns in the kingdom. Though at Leicester too can be found significant evidence of pottery manufacture at Southgate Street, suggesting a boom in commerce in the later 10th century. Yet, with prosperity always comes a price. And when Vikings returned towards the end of the century, the Danelaw didn't escape their wrath. A vicious 30-year struggle would soon break out pitting brother against brother, father against son, until England was finally conquered outright by the Danish king Canute in 1016. The five boroughs were central to these power struggles. When the king of Denmark, Svein Forkbeard, conquered England in 1013, he did so with the acquiescence of the five boroughs. 
making his capital the town of Gainsborough on the borderlands between Lindsay and Mercia. Forkbeard died not long afterwards, however, and of course, a vicious reprisal campaign was launched against Lindsay, the region which had given him the most support. During the ensuing war between Edmund Ironside and Svein's son Canute, there is evidence to suggest that both sides received aid from the five boroughs, with both men marrying powerful noblewomen associated with the region. Ultimately, little would change in eastern England under direct Danish rule. These Danes were already Christian and relatively well integrated into European society. A man of unknown origins, Earl Syred, was given command of the region in 1019. Though, by 1035, after 16 years of direct Danish rule, and as the lines between Englishman and Dane began to blur, the earldom was subsumed into that of Leofric, Earl of Mercia, the great rival of Godwin, Earl of Wessex. Though the five boroughs would remain its own entity within Mercia for centuries. In 1015, we have a unique reference to seven boroughs, perhaps also including Yorkshire and Torxey, regions with a distinct Danish system of laws. These laws remained as they ever were even during the reign of Edward the Confessor, as evidenced by surviving codes, and through the Norman conquest of 1066. The Doomsday Book, fully compiled in 1086, gives a fascinating glimpse into the East Midlands of the late 11th century, with lands in Lincoln in particular still being held by names such as Svertinger, son of Harthacanut, and Svartbrand, son of Ulf, but also English names like Leofwine and Godric. In the years after the Norman conquest, however, the Danish-descended population of eastern England proved to be a little too friendly with Denmark for William the Conqueror's liking. Danish king Sven Estridsson and his sons simply wouldn't stop trying to invade England, hearkening back to the days of Canute's North Sea Empire. By the late 1060s, the northerners, no doubt supported by elements of the five boroughs, simply rebelled one too many times. If William was to cling on to his new possessions, he had to set an example launching into a systematic reign of terror we know today as the harrying of the North. Life there would never be the same again, as potentially hundreds of thousands of people died. But that's a story for another day. Hello and thank you for watching. History Time is a one-man team, run by me, Pete Kelly. If you want to see me visiting ancient cities, medieval citadels, megalithic monuments, Iron Age hill forts, and so much more, then subscribe to my other channel by that same name. I'll also be making book reviews, video essays, and anything else that doesn't quite fit in to History Time. Thanks for watching, 
and I'll see you on the next one.